So one of the questions that comes up in this series is, how did we get the books of the Bible that we have? You've learned these uh, books. Maybe that, that should have been one of the songs that we sung was, uh, you know, the one where you sing the books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, I can remember that one. Now, that's easy with the New Testament, and I can still sing that song in my head. And then the Old Testament, forget it, though. Uh, now, somebody once told me, they were like, oh, there is a song to remember that. And I said, really? You know? Uh, and then they go, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, the first. And it goes on like this, and it's like, and the second book is, and I'm like, forget it. I mean, I, I can't even, you know a better one, right? Yeah, okay, well, you can, you can tell me about it later. But I just, it's just easier to memorize the list of books. But maybe, uh, maybe somebody's found a way. Maybe Lori's found a way here. And that list of 66 books, where did it come from? Why those books? I've titled this part of the lesson, Is This Canon? And you see the picture on the screen, you're like, of course it's a canon. No, it's not. That's not canon, that's a canon. Okay? <laughs> the difference being, notice the spelling. A cannon with two ends is the thing that goes boom. Cannon with one end is a list of accepted items, or it means that it's official. Um, you'll hear this question is it canon more and more with works of fiction where you have a series? When the first Star Wars movie came out uh, in 77, I was a fan. I really liked that. And then, now we only had one movie there for quite a few years. That was it. You know, now they got all the movies and TV shows and everything else. But back then, we just had one little old movie, okay? Two robots and a Darth Vader, and that was it. And so, uh, we, you know, but th then somebody put out a book. I remember, it was one of the, the first books I read. A guy named Alan Dean Foster put out this book called Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And it had Luke, and it had Leia, and it had Darth Vader. And I thought, boy, I'm going to read this. I want to see what the continuing adventures are. And, of course, along the way, they go on this, this mission, and Darth Vader's out to get them and everything. But Luke and Leia, they have a little bit of a romance along the way. Oh, how touching. Then you come to the second movie, and you find out they're brother and sister. Spoilers, I know. But, you know, come on. It's, uh, and, and so all of a sudden, that book that I read, it doesn't fit anymore. They throw it out. No, that, was, that's, that doesn't really, that's not real anymore. In other words, it's not canon. It's not official anymore. We talk about canonizing saints. That means you're making them official. Long before John Paul, I don't know, is John Paul II a saint yet? Or is he? I don't know, he's on the way. But anyway, you can still get a candle and you can pray to him. Okay, but uh, somewhere along the line, he'll be officially made a saint by the Catholic Church, and he'll be canonized. It means he'll be added to the official list. And when we talk about things being canonical, we mean does that fit in with the official accepted group or not? So we use this word in different ways, but it comes from a Greek word meaning list. The list. It's what makes it official. The idea of the biblical canon, boy, this is a big topic, and, and, and we could spend a lot of time on this. And I know that even though this is the AP history crowd, 
it would wear us out, okay? Because we got, we got to press on. But the, the, there, there's, there, are, there are books, there are studies devoted to this, and it's become more and more popular because of this idea entering into pop culture. And you're going to see um, uh, stuff on History Channel. You're going to see books in the bookstore, and they're going to ask the question about the lost books of the Bible, that somehow there was some book out there that is not... It's not canonical, but oh my, it's a lost book that they just found and nobody had it. And, and one of the ways that that was popularized recently was with the Da Vinci Code. Uh, some, I, this book was so popular and everybody read it and I finally gave in. I thought, I'm, I'm going to have to read this book. And um, I did. And I, I, I want my time back. I know. And I, at the time when I said that I didn't like Da Vinci Code, it, it's like, I remember that was the hot topic back then. Is like I said, you know, I really don't care for this book. And people came at me like I was voting for the person they didn't like. And uh, th- th- I mentioned it again, Joyce. I'm sorry. I mentioned it again. But they were, they were after me. And I'm like, look, can I just not like the book? And, and my problem with the book is sort of occupational hazard. I couldn't get far enough to accept the premise because um, this is the stuff that I'd studied. The background, the early centuries of the church, uh, text criticism, how we got the Bible, all of that was part of my work for four years uh, when I was, when I was a, a graduate student. And so there's one part in, in the book where um, the... Um, uh, the uh, I guess he's the antagonist. He says, the Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Another statement he makes is, history has never had a definitive version of the book. That is a mixed statement. That's one I remember. I had The first statement is true. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. History has never had a definitive version of the book. No, that's not true. In fact, it's history that will give us, it's the development over time that will give us the the list, the canon. So there's one scene, and it gets played out in the movie, uh, and I actually like the movie better. Uh, And and what you've got here is you've got, uh, there's there's Tom Hanks, He's he's your hero, uh, there's uh, Audrey Tattoo, I don't know, okay, Sophie, her name's Sophie. And then you've got uh, Gandalf here, and he's the, um, he's the, he's, he's Tebring. He's the, he's the guy that said all that crazy stuff about the Bible. It says, who chose which gospels to include, Sophie asked. Yeah, so you, first she's been told, oh, there's more than four gospels. That's true. There are a lot of gospels out there. Aha, Teabing, then that's, that's, uh, that's, that's Ian McKellen. Burst in with enthusiasm. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. And that's when I had to say goodbye. I was like, no, I can't, you know. I mean, I could, I could you know, if, if he said that that was the secret or he had uncovered evidence, I'd like, okay, I'll go with that. They're, they're writing fiction. But at that point, I'm like, oh, now you're just getting preachy and you're trying to tell us this. And people say, but it's just fiction. Yeah, it is. But it's based on a lot of um, 
research that's going on. In fact, you'll find it in uh, books about the Gnostic Gospels. Elaine Pagel, she's a professor at Princeton, um, does some interesting work. But this is, this is one of the things that she puts forth in a lot of her books uh, that, in fact, you, you, you may not be able to read it, but the subtitle of this says, uh, The Gnostic Gospels, Long Buried and Suppressed, The Gnostic Gospels Contain the Secret Writings Attributed to the Followers of Jesus. Now, that, that's kind of putting a, an interesting twist on the Gnostic Gospels. Some of that might be to market books, I don't know, but... Again, it's this idea that's out there that grows in, in, in popular culture that somehow the, there was an official um, uh, suppression by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great to get rid of all these secret books as, as if everybody sort of uh, accepted them and thought that they were great back in the day. And, and, and then as soon as the institutional church came along, they, they banned it. They, they got rid of all those books. We like conspiracy theories. And this is all very neat and tidy. And in fact, one of Pagel's points is that as the church becomes more institutionalized, now she, she won't be as, quite as black and white about it as Dan Brown in Da Vinci Code, but one of her points is that as the church becomes more institutionalized, they start getting rid of some of these books that they don't like because it puts forth an agenda that they don't care for. I disagree, uh, and not just because I'm defending uh, the, you know, the status quo, but because I don't think research and history supports that. When you, when you look at the development and how these books developed and became recognized by the church, even early on, um, long before, hundreds of years before there was ever a Constantine the Great, hundreds of years before there was a, um, uh, an, an, an official status for Christianity in the Holy Roman Empire. The books that you and I have that make up our Bible were commonly accepted. Uh, there's, there's a few uh, that are kind of on the line, and I want to talk about that in just a second. Now, uh, I don't have time to discuss the, the Old Testament. That's a long process, how we get those books accepted. You've, you've heard some of it before, though, where they would call that the Tanakh. You would have the, um, the law, the prophets, and the writings. It's divided up into three sections. And over that 1,000 years of development of the written shape of the Old Testament, by the time of Jesus, he'll talk about the law and the prophets. They understand that there's two categories of Holy Scripture. And you really don't have much else out there until about the second century before Christ. And about that time, you've got some people writing some interesting uh, works... Uh, trying to bring some of that stuff because what's happening culturally is the Jewish people are becoming a little more Greek. And so they're trying to find some acceptance. There's some interesting things happening around the 2nd century B.C. Some of you have heard of the Apocrypha, okay? The, uh, those those uh, books that, well, if you get a Catholic Bible, they'll be in there, okay? And you get uh, characters like Tobit, okay? And that's, a, that's an interesting story. He's fighting demons. And let me tell you, some, this stuff, and first and second Maccabees, we've talked about that. 
Those books come along around the second century BC. So they're not as they're not as accepted as the other 39 books of the Old Testament because they're latecomers to the party. And not everyone agrees that those are scripture. And some of the history is 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 questionable. One of my favorites is um the story of uh of Joseph, remember Joseph in the in Genesis, uh, uh, land of Egypt, and uh, you know he became Pharaoh. Okay, that Joseph. One of the one of the second century books is uh, I think it's called the tale of Joseph and Asenath, and Asenath is Joseph's wife. Now she gets a little mention down there in Scripture. Okay, and you know Joseph marries her. Well, now remember he's living in Egypt, so he can't find a good Hebrew girl to marry. He's got to marry an Egyptian. Now, the thing is, by the time you get to the 2nd century B.C. and you've got people eh, kind of losing their distinction, well, now you've got a problem because you can look back and it's like, wait a second, old Joseph, um, he's one of our, you know, kind of almost a patriarch. I mean, he's the fourth, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then you had Joseph, saved his people. He married an Egyptian girl. So this story comes along and explains that basically... She is an Egyptian princess, the daughter of an Egyptian priest, but she becomes very Jewish in this story. And I mean, it's almost like Cinderella. There's one part where the honeybees come and, you know, and they build a little hive around her and she becomes very Jewish. And it's like Cinderella with the little birdies making her a dress and all that. It's a very interesting little story, you know. But you get the idea as you're going through it. It's like, wow, someone really wants Joseph's wife to be about as Jewish as she can get. And you get that idea that there's kind of an edge, there's kind of an, there's an agenda in this. And a lot of the books do that. And, and a lot of those second century books, they find people that just get a little mention in the Bible, and boy, they run with it. One of the most popular was Enoch, seventh from Adam. You know, everybody's dying, you know, so-and-so begets so-and-so, and then he died, and then he died. But when you get to Enoch, it's like, and then he walked with God, and he was no more. People paid attention to that. They were like, hey, what's this all about? And so they start writing stories about Enoch and his prophecies and those, those sons of God that saw the daughters of men and they were fair and they had children with them and their children were the Nephilim. In a way, in the second century B.C., you've got some kind of religious science fiction. I mean, they start, well, you've got these angels and they come down to earth and they marry women and their kids are these big old monstrous titans and they're, you know... And, and they're actually borrowing some Greek mythology to fill in the blanks on all that. And that's what happens in the second century. That's why those books aren't as widely accepted. But anyone would tell you in the first century at the time of Jesus that the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have, they would say, that's the Bible. They would say, that's Scripture. Now, they would have three divisions for it, but they would more or less say, that's Scripture. And that process of how you get there is, is pretty involved. But I think it's interesting. It's something similar to, and it'll be easier for us to look at, the New Testament. Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson is a, a scholar at um, Emory. And uh, actually Catholic in background, but he is very, um, very reliable, I think, in his understanding of how we got the text, he mentions that the development of the New Testament has five stages, and I find this to be very helpful. Composition, usage, collection, selection, and ratification. So you go to the first part, composition. Well, if you're going to get it writing, it's got to be composed. It's got to be written. 
So you've got all these writings going on at the first, in the first century. They, they have the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, and the first century, the first 100 years of the church, they, they agree that that, those Old Testament writings, the law, the prophets, the writings, they all agree that is Scripture. If they're going to read Scripture on Sunday morning, they're likely going to be reading from Deuteronomy or Job, or they're going to be reading from the Psalms. And there are collections. We have collections of these books that, that show us that those readings were very prominent in the early centuries. Uh, some of those translations we talked about are translations of these Old Testament documents. And some of them were intended, because those, those are rather large documents, some of them then are intended to be read in Scripture. It was a, it was a, a, a composition put together for uh, worship. But at some point, the first century writing has to be originally composed. It has to be written. So we've looked at different uh, texts. Luke tells us why he wrote Luke and why he wrote Acts. Um, Jude mentions his process of wanting to write about one thing but has to write about another because he sees some problems that have to be dealt with. Paul will talk about why he writes his documents. So these things are composed. But sometimes you have stuff that is composed in the New Testament that we read about in another book. In, in Acts 15, for example, you, you read about the, the leaders who gather in Jerusalem. And they gather in the Jerusalem, and they're trying to discern God's way because the Gentiles are coming in, and they realize, okay, look, well, what are we going to ask of them out of respect for our, uh, for our Jewish background, but we can't bind that on these Gentiles. But there's got to be some things. And so the leaders in Jerusalem come to the realization that it seems good to them and it seems good to the Holy Spirit that there ought to be some, some, you know, some boundaries, some basics, and they write a letter. Now think about that. That letter was not Acts. That letter was the letter about that matter. And Paul and Barnabas went with that letter and they went and they shared that information with the churches that they knew about many of them Gentiles. But we have the record of what was contained in that letter from Acts. But it was writings like that, like we read about in Acts 15, that, think about it, that, that's what led to the formation and the composition of Scripture. That letter does become Scripture in that it enters into Acts 15, but this, that's, that would have been the same thing with Paul's letters or the letter of James that it was sent as a message to these churches so that they could get instruction, so that they could receive instruction and, and receive um, uh, guidance and communication. There's other writings that we know about from the first century, like the Didache. It comes from late in the first century, somewhere in the 90s. It's a very interesting document. And in fact, we learn a lot about it. We can learn a lot about the form of baptism from the DDK. The DDK is just a set of instructions. It's composed in the first century, but it doesn't become part of Scripture. We'll talk about why in a moment. We also have a letter that Clement, a church leader, writes to the Corinthians, and he mentions uh, Paul's correspondence with them. It's like he's following up on uh, Paul. A lot of people say, well, why isn't First Clement part of Scripture? Well, th th there's reasons, and it has to do with 
the rest of this five stages. Uh, the usage. When these things are written, are they then read in worship? And as these texts become read in worship and they become part of the communication and the instruction of the growing community of faith, they, they take on a status similar. In other words, people start to regard, say, for example, the writings of Paul that they may have. They regard those to be equally inspiring and encouraging and meaningful as the Old Testament scriptures that they accepted. Uh, Colossians 4.16 is your text that, that where Paul says, now after you've read the letter to the Laodiceans, he says to the church in Colossae, or you send this letter that I'm giving you to Laodicea, and then you read the letter that I sent to the Laodiceans. It shows us, it gives us some insight that there was an exchange of these letters, that these Christian communities then would copy these letters and they would share them. They used them for encouragement. So what would happen very quickly is you would create collections. Each church group or area or region of the church would start copying these letters and keeping them that that's how you that's how you got your bible in those days we're so spoiled that we can just go grab a bible uh i you know how many bibles have we all lost and um in fact uh, our speaker who came to our retreat he said uh, listen if you find that bible um, he left it at the retreat site, and I said, is it in some special Bible, some keepsake? And he goes, no, but if it's there, I'll get it when I come back. But again, you know, people have Bibles. Um, I know some speakers that everywhere they go, they have to buy a Bible. I've got more Bibles in my collection because when I go somewhere, I'm like, I got everything I needed except for my Bible, you know, and I'm doing a wedding, and I'm like, okay. So I'll go down to the bookstore, and I'll buy a Bible. I'm so glad it's electronic now. But we take it for granted. But in the first century, the only way you would have scripture is you had to write it down and you had to copy it by hand and you had to then share that with the church so they start to develop collections in second peter 3 peter makes reference to paul's writings now if he's going to say paul's writings if he's going to identify it as the writings of paul that means i mean you know, if, if um, that song that we mentioned this morning, if I said, you know, uh, among, you know, let's, let's talk about the songs of uh, William Featherston. You'd say, what? That's the only song that we have from Featherston. So instead, I mentioned the title of the song, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Oh, yeah, I know that one. But Paul has enough writings that have become important to the church that now there's a collection of his writings and people pay attention to those. By the year 150, you've got uh, uh, one of our, our church leaders, church writers, a fellow by the name of Justin Martyr. He says, he, in, in the year 150, the middle of the second century, he describes to us what a Sunday morning would have looked like in the year 150 or thereabouts. He says that one of the things they would do in worship is they would read the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets. By 150 then, in addition to what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, they have collections of writings from the apostles. Now that might mean the gospels, that might mean some of the epistles, 
He, he's not, he just calls it the memoirs of the apostles. But it's the words and the teaching of the apostles. It's the New Testament. And you've already got that identified by 150. So where's this business that along comes Constantine the Great and he says, ah, we're going to kick out some of these bad books and stuff like that. Already, we're not even, Constantine the Great is in the 300s. So you're at least 150 years away from, from him. Uh, one of the things, and here's another interesting fact when you talk about collections. Sometimes you get into the deep into this study, you'll hear something called the Muratorian Fragment. Boy, that name just sounds exciting. It sounds like an episode of Star Trek or something. But anyway, the, uh, what, it, what it is is it's a, it's a, it's a Latin document, but it's, uh, it, its earliest form, it's a 7th century manuscript, but it's, it's, got the, it's copied from a 2nd fir- century writing. So around the year 170, okay, you've got this writing and it describes it's 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 describing which books are scripture and which are not you can look it up on the internet you can you can read it and read the translations of it it mentions that there are four gospels so by 170 they're already recognizing four gospels now because it's a fragment we don't have the first part so we don't know what the first two are that they named but they named Luke, and they said the latest was John. It names 13 Pauline letters. But it says that the letter to the Laodiceans, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans and Paul's letter to the Alexandrians, they said, we don't read those in worship. How about that? They were already making distinctions in 170. There's no mention of 3 John. Doesn't mean it wasn't there, just no mention of it. There's no mention of First and Second Peter. It may be that in 170... Whoever's putting together this list, they're not, they're not aware of those documents. I mean, that's possible. Now, with just any one of the Gospels, they would have enough of the Gospel message to know what it means to follow Christ. But this is all being formed. Uh, he does say that we've got two apocalypses, or revela- you know, revelation. One of them is the Apocalypse of John which the writer of this fragment says, that's good. The Apocalypse of Peter, he says, we read it, but don't you read it in worship. They were already making some criteria by 170. So where's this business that along comes Constantine the Great, and he says, we're going to have a purge here, we're going to get rid of all these books. No, we enjoy our Apocalypse of Peter. Don't take it away from us. No, we don't like it. Because it talks about Gnostic stuff and it's going to be the kind of stuff that people in the 20th and 21st century are going to use to have a lot of freedom. But we want to make those people suffer. See, already by 170 they're thinking, you know, this this is worth being read in worship. Apocalypse of John. What about Apocalypse of Peter? Eh, you can read it, but no, no, it doesn't belong in in the worship. But now they will include the wisdom of Solomon, which is one of those 2nd century B.C. writings. And if you ever read it, it's in the Apocrypha. It's pretty good stuff. And they even had other writings from the 1st century in the New Testament. Which uh, So what you do, what you see in the Muratorian fragment is this fourth stage, which is selection. They're making decisions. They're talking to each other. and, and there, Now, there is some contention early on. You've got a fellow named Marcion, 
And he comes along and he says, we need to get rid of the Old Testament. And then you've got other people, uh, the, the people who are writing against. In fact, we don't know anything about Marcion. Everything we know about Marcion comes from the people who wrote and said, Marcion has some bad ideas. And they would say, Marcion wants to get rid of the Old Testament. Don't do that. He's, got, he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. And so some of the things that we know about these, about these so-called heretics are from the people who wrote against them. They're not writing from any official stance. Christianity's not even official yet. And what they're saying is they're saying this stuff just isn't on the same level. So you have things like the DDK. When you read the DDK, you get the idea, you know, this is good teaching material. This is good instructional material. But this doesn't belong in worship scripture. And you get the idea that scripture for them is that which at some level was read in worship. It was read to the congregation. It was read to people, and it had a purpose. The usage of it selects it out. It selects out, and you be, it becomes clear which of these belong as part of the New Testament and which ones don't. Gospel of Judas, which is one of those that has made the rounds here in the last 10 years. Actually, it's been people have known about the Gospel of Judas for a long time. The big revelation was is that somebody found a copy of it somewhere in some antiquities market. Even back in the... They found it in a Coptic church? Okay, there you go. Good, okay, yeah, and so they discovered this. I mean, we already knew about it. We already knew its contents, you know. So now we get to make stuff. It's like, oh, I mean, if it's got Judas's name on it, I mean, oh boy, you know that that's going to sound evil, you know. But the fact of the matter is, nobody ever, they didn't accept the thing when it came out, when it was first around. So they make these selections, and, and, and what you see is you see the early church recognizes what is Scripture. It's not to say that all these are bad. Shepherd of Hermas, Epistle of Barnabas, these are often considered to be good writings, but at the same time, they're not Scripture. They're just not Scripture. This process of selection reminds me of a writing that, um, or some research that an uh, author did back in the 19, late 1940s. He was asking questions about elders in the church and how did these ancient Palestinian communities, how did they recognize elders? So he would go to them and he would say, he would ask the question in these, in these villages, in these communities where they would actually have elders, and he would say, um, how... How do you, you know, how do you recognize when someone's an elder? And in asking the question, the people paused and said, what are you talking about? You know, they were mystified by the question. It's like, we know who our elders are. Uh, how do you know? How do you do that? We just know. They recognize it. They see it for what it is. It's a gradual process that just takes place, and it just, it happens. And I think in, in our age of arrogance and, and where we put so much emphasis on procedure and policy and control, we think that they had to have some meeting somewhere and decide, we better figure out which books get in and which books don't. But actually, it's an organic process the same way that the church is an organic group. When the Spirit of God is active in the group, it's going to grow appropriately. 
God trusts his people to recognize what's scripture and what's not. And, 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 you know, and so here's the thing. You know, it's possible that some hidden gospel could be found. It's possible that we've never heard about before. And somebody says, well, no, God wouldn't allow that to happen. Well, we've got to be careful before we make a statement like that. But here's the thing. Whether or not it becomes Scripture and we want to add it in as a fifth gospel, first of all, you're going to have to go against the force of history. So when that fictional character in Dan Brown's book said, history's never accepted it, yes, it has. As early as 170, you already see it forming. There's a pretty strong emphasis. They had gospels to choose from. In fact, they even could have taken their four gospels. They could have mixed them all together like they tried to do in the Syrian churches. And they said, no, don't do that. We want four. It's commonly accepted. There's no hidden conspiracy. It's just what's recognized as, yeah, those Gospels belong. They had the Gospel of Thomas. Everybody always talks about that. They're familiar with the Gospel of Thomas. It wasn't Scripture. So by the time you get to the fifth stage ratification, it's already been decided. So let's say we find that hidden fifth Gospel. We've never ever known about it. The only way it's going to get recognized as Scripture is it's going to be consistent with everything else that we know in the gospel and in scripture so i'm never worried about that happening but here's the thing i also think it's highly i said possible it's possible but i think it's highly unlikely because those documents that came from that early period when all of this is being formed the ones that were recognized as scripture were cherished and they were copied meticulously, and they were kept, and they were shared, and there were collections formed. By the time you get to the ratification stage, people are just recognizing what's already there. They're making official what's already accepted. It's, um, it, and it becomes the part of a lot of confessions of faith. So you get these groups together like, you know, in, the, in the later centuries. We're talking about 16th, 17th, 18th, you know, and they're, they're like, okay, well, here's the, here's the books that we're going to recognize as Scripture and the books that we're not. And there's not a lot of surprises in that list. But they have to write it in there. I think they're kind of making church policy at that point. Everybody's already accepted that. And so by the 4th century, when you get to those early creeds and they say, these are the official list, eh, nobody's arguing it, really. It's like writing a law for something that everybody already knows how to do. What I love about the story of how we got these books of the Bible is that it demonstrates a lot of a lot of confidence in God's ability to form and shape people and for his people to grow in combination with his word. And I think it shows us once again that scripture is not ink on a page, but it is a living word. And so when letters of Paul are accepted as Scripture, and if you believe the Miratorian fragment, some letters of Paul are not accepted as Scripture. You have to ask yourself, so what's the difference here? Is it that Paul is the author? Not necessarily. All of his stuff doesn't make it into the Bible. What it is, is it's what he's writing 
has the gospel in it. It is inspired. And what inspired means, I mean, think about that. Inspired is not the same thing as canonical. Inspired means, just like the Spirit, that the process of the Spirit is involved in that writing. Every canonical work is an inspired work. It's another question to wonder if every inspired work is canonical, but they're not the same thing, inspired and canonical. So I think there's a lot of confidence there that, that, we, have, that we have Scripture, that we have revelation. And what really brings it forward is, you know, one of the books that, that is always up for grabs in those early centuries is Hebrews. It's not mentioned in the Miratorian Fragment. Some people are like, I don't know about this book. You know, there, there's some debate. But Hebrews is the book that tells us that the ultimate revelation is not just from the prophets or the writings, but it is Jesus Christ. That in these days, he has spoken to us. He's revealed himself to us through his son, which makes it even more alive. And so I think we can have a lot of confidence in what we have and what we call Scripture. And then we're going to look more and more about how that living word has brought life into the world in the weeks ahead. Right now, we're going to sing uh, the song that's been selected. If you need to partake of communion, that's been prepared in room 100. And then uh, after this song, Matt Griffin will dismiss us in prayer.